fun when you heard we were talking about marriage today. That that movie certainly comes to my mind, and uh, hopefully for those of you who are married, it looked nothing like that. In fact, I really want to unpack for you some good news this morning. Marriage is a good thing. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth, and for those of you, this is your first Sunday, we're studying through the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians this summer. And uh, we're now to the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, and Paul has been writing and responding to some of what he's already written and responding to what he's even received from them. And one of the things we're going to see in this passage is he had gotten a letter from the church at Corinth. And we don't have that letter, but we know from context that he's addressing issues of marriage. And let me just tell you about the context of Corinth. Corinth was a wicked, perverse city. And yet the gospel had reached Corinth. A church had been established there. They're now believers there, and so they're asking questions. First of all, should we view marriage the way the world views marriage, or is there a different approach to marriage? Or should we even be married now that we're believers? Should we fully devote ourselves to our relationship with God, and so therefore should we just not be Married, or if we are married, should we not experience physical intimacy in marriage? Those are some of the things that Paul addresses in this chapter. And I just want to start out by saying, if you're not married, I want you to take some good notes today. If you are married, I want you to take some good notes today, (laughs) because Paul has a word for you. I just want to start with the first couple of verses, and we're going to walk through the first 16 verses of this passage, but... Just for the question of marriage, look what Paul says. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. So the first thing that Paul talks about is, is it, is it okay to be married? And he answers, yes, concerning what you have written to me, It's okay for a man not to touch a woman. In fact, Paul later in in the passage says, I wish that you would be like me. We're assuming at this point that Paul was a widower. In order to achieve the stage of leadership that Paul had achieved as being a Pharisee among Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the requirements was that would be that he was married. But apparently his wife had passed away, and Paul is saying now as an unmarried man, If it's possible for you, I'd recommend that that's what you choose, to remain unmarried. And yet, Paul said, because of immorality, and certainly the city he was writing to was full of immorality. Paul said, because of immorality, then, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. He talks a lot in here about physical intimacy, about sex. And so Paul starts with, is it okay to be married? The answer to that question is... Absolutely, yes. In fact, we'll get to this in a minute. Paul is going to tell us that celibacy is a gift from God, but not everybody has it. In fact, most don't. And so Paul says, because of that, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. So then that begs the question, whose idea is marriage in the first place? If you just woke up this year or last year, you may get the idea that marriage was kind of a new thing and that it was kind of up to politicians (laughs) to decide about marriage. Listen, 
Go all the way back to Genesis. Marriage was God's idea. In fact, if you got your Bibles, look at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And there's really more here, but just for the sake of time, I'm just going to begin with verse 18 through 24. I'll give you a minute to find it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall, fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All the way back in the beginning, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, we see that marriage was God's idea in fact he said it's not good for man to be alone ten times in just the first couple of chapters of genesis throughout creation ten times god had said it's either good or very good only one thing god says wasn't good and that is for man to be alone and ladies i've seen some men without their wives and it's not a good thing not talking to all the men but there's some men that are so clueless when they get away from their wife it's just like dude you need help Well, that's what God knew in the very beginning. He knew that it wasn't good for man to be alone. And he brings all the animals before Adam. What what do you think Adam's seeing here? I think Adam's seeing every single species of animal has a male and a female. They all have one corresponding to the other. And yet, none of them were suitable for Adam. Adam realized that I don't belong with any of these. And God said it's not good for a man to be alone. I think God's plan from the very beginning was to show Adam the order of nature, to show Adam what his plan was, and to show Adam that he was alone. Now certainly he had perfect relationship with God, but God recognized it's not good for a man to be alone. So what did he do? He created a helper suitable for him. Now some men view this word, that's what you are, honey, you're my helper. You need to understand what the word helper suitable for means. It literally means God is creating a partner corresponding to the man. In fact, the word helper is used more often in the Old Testament to describe God's help for us. So helper does not mean secondary. Helper does not mean less. It simply means corresponding to. And so God created woman. And he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Literally, to be glued to. To be stuck together. And it's a good thing. So whose idea is marriage? It's God's idea. And God has a plan for it. And that's what Paul addresses. And we're going to talk about this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me just give you a few reasons for marriage. And then a few observations before we move on to the next point. 
Why do we get married? Well, you're going to think the dude's a preacher because all of these start with a P, but maybe it'll be harder for you or easier for you to remember. First is for procreation. What does God say? In Genesis 1:28, God says, "Be fruitful and multiply." Now, God had already said that in Genesis 1 when He was talking about the animals: "Be fruitful and multiply." I've created you. Now, be fruitful, multiply. But He says the same thing to Adam and Eve. After after He creates Adam and Eve, He says. Be fruitful and multiply. So one of the reasons for marriage is for procreation. It's to continue man and woman. The second is for pleasure. For pleasure. God knew that it wasn't good for man to be alone, and so God created Eve. He created woman and brought her unto the man. In fact, Proverbs 5, verse 18 and 19, there's a bunch of verses I could have used, but Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 says this, Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. So marriage is not only for procreation, it's also for pleasure. In case you're wondering, God knew what he was doing when he created man and woman. He knew all about the physical intimacy that was going to take place between man and woman. And it was a good thing. Third thing, not only procreation, not only pleasure, but partnership. Already, already really addressed that. It's not good for man to be alone, but he created and made a partner suitable for him. Not one of the animals, but Eve. Brought her unto the man. And so for partnership. And I'll give you a fourth one that, that I don't think, Mac, I think we're supposed to have these on the screen. Do I not have them up there? All right, sorry. Fourth one is pattern. Later on in Ephesians, Jesus gives us a pattern of how the church is supposed to operate. By, or he gives a pattern of marriage based on the church. The pattern of marriage in Ephesians, the, 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 under the lordship of Christ, the man is the head over the family, and then the woman and her role in marriage, and, and these two roles correspond with one another. One's not lesser than the other. They're just different roles. And so a pattern. But can I just give you some advice now on marriage? All right, Guys especially, I'm speaking to you, especially if you're a young guy, teenage or older, guy thinking about marriage you're not married yet let me just give you a few observations of an old guy okay first and i don't i know i don't have these on the screen um first is this one of the things i'm i'm witnessing these days is this phenomenon called delayed adolescence what does that mean it means a lot of guys are just real happy being 30 years old living in their parents basements playing video games and why is that happening it's because guys have become wimps. It's because instead of taking leadership in the dating relationship, they're kind of waiting on the girl to lead. And girls are kind of going, oh, man, I don't know, why didn't this guy notice me? So girls have become more aggressive because guys are not doing what they were created to do, to lead. Any amens from the women? How about that? Now, guys, I know you think I'm stepping on your toes, but grow up. Man up. Quit waiting on the woman to lead. How about asking her out for a date so that she doesn't have to wait until Sadie Hawkins' day? How many of you even know what that is? Sadie Hawkins. Once every four years. <laughs> now, I know that doesn't, that's not a hearing thing about that anymore. Women are able to ask guys out on dates. But listen, guys. There's no reason to delay adolescence. Grow up. Put the video game down. Get a job. 
How about this one? Do you even have a plan? And here's one of the excuses I get. Well, I'm waiting until I can afford it. If you wait till you afford to be married, you will never be married. And then the second one is, well, we're going to wait till we can afford it to have children. Really? If you wait till you can afford to have children, you'll probably never have children. Now, am I saying don't have a plan? Absolutely. I'm saying have a plan, guys. And teenagers, listen, teenage guys, this starts now. If you're 15 years old, you already, already need to be thinking about saving money. What kind of job am I going to get? When you graduate from high school, the answer is not, I don't know, when somebody asks you, so what are you going to do now? I don't know. I guess I'm going to live with mom and dad. They got a nice basement. We got Xbox. <laughs> and some of the immorality that's taking place among those, that age group is for that very reason. Okay? That's just number one. I got about six of these. Number two. Uh, by the way, delayed answer, delayed adolescence. One of my favorite answers to this question, I used to tra- I traveled, used to full time and spoke to teenagers, and I asked this question one summer talking on this subject, and I just said, I was speaking to a group of girls, and I said, ladies, answer this question because all guys want to know, what are you looking for in a guy? A guy that you'd want to date, a guy that you might want to be married to someday. And I heard a lot of answers. The best answer I ever heard was this. A girl stood up and she said, I'm looking for a guy that loves Jesus more than he loves me. And I stopped. That's the best answer I've ever heard. And about a month later, I was speaking at a camp to a group of guys. I said, guys, what are you looking for in, in a marriage partner, a dating partner? And a guy stood up. He said, I'm looking for a girl that loves Jesus more than she does me. And I'm thinking, I got somebody you need to meet. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is like we've made a love connection right here. I mean, this, is, this must be of God. So that leads me. To another question, and that is, if you are looking to find the best person to marry, here's your focus. You be the best person. Focus on your relationship with God. You, you become marriage material, and God will take care of the person that you're going to marry. Girls especially, if you're sitting back thinking, where are all the, and I've heard this, where are all the good guys? I don't know. I hadn't been looking for them. So what do you do? Listen, you, you, you dwell on your relationship with Jesus Christ. And if it is your desire to be married, then that's a probably good indication that you do not have the spiritual gift of celibacy. And so God wants you to be married. And he's going to bring somebody for you to be married. But rather than going to all the places you shouldn't go to find the right guy, I mean, think about some of the places you're looking for Mr. Right. If the place is wrong, Mr. Wright's probably not there. Okay? Second one. I know I'm meddling here, but it's okay. You all are leaving after today, you know? <laughs> Second thing is a pastor. I'm just watching people spend way too much money on weddings. How do you know you're spending too much money on weddings? If you or your parents are having to go into long-term debt so that you can say, I do, it just don't cost that much to get married. And guys, here's a scary thing. If you're engaged and your fiancé wants you to go with her to a wedding, pay attention. Because some girls are wanting to top whatever the last wedding was. They had ice sculptures. 
then I'm going to have to have a stringed orchestra. I don't, you know, if you're spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on a wedding, you're creating the social event of the season. You've probably missed the point. Weddings ought to honor God. And I just don't think spending exorbitant amounts of money on weddings honors God. You need to be a better steward of your money than that. I mean, God, go to her father and say, look, how much is this wedding going to cost you? Give me half that and we'll elope. <laughs> now, I say that joking. All right. I've heard that that offer has been out there before on the table. But listen, you could a lot better spend the money on preparing your life for marriage than to be in debt for the next 10 years of your life because you had a special day. Now, listen, that day is special. It needs to be special. But you don't have to spend twenty-five, dollars dollars $100,000 to make it more special. It is special. Okay? So don't spend too much money on it. The other is prolonged engagements. One of the things that Paul's going to talk about in here is one of the reasons we get married is so that we don't burn. And what I mean by prolonged engagements, last week, a couple that had been engaged for eight years, she finally broke up with him. Because she decided, finally, after eight years, she finally decided, I don't think we're ever going to get married. Unfortunately, they were living together for eight years. And girls, I want you to tell you about a lot of guys who aren't honoring God. Hey, I'm already enjoying all the benefits of marriage without the commitment. Wake up. Wake up. Listen, you need to save physical intimacy for your wedding night. And you don't need to use the excuse, well, we love each other, or well, we're engaged. Well, if you're engaged and you can't wait, get married. Don't wait. Get married. And don't prolong it for years. Fifth, have I given you four already? I might have lost track. Let me make sure I'm covering them all. The fifth is do not be unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul, same writer, different book, next book. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Back 14 to 15, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Don't be unequally yoked. In other words, don't even missionary date. I have heard stories rarely about a guy who come to know the Lord because of his Christian girlfriend. But I just want to tell you, most of the time, 99 times out of 100, it goes the other way. Be careful. Don't think that you're going to missionary date. Why? Because you're already showing him the wrong thing, girls. First question you ought to ask is, Tell me about your relationship with the Lord. Guys, same thing. Tell me about your relationship with the Lord. First question I ask when I have a couple that want to get married. Well, first question is usually, why do you want to get married? The second is, tell me about your relationship with the Lord. And I've just determined as a pastor that I don't marry non-believers. I don't marry one to a believer to a non-believer, and I don't marry two non-believers. Don't ask me to represent God in a union that's not of God. And sixth, I wrote this one just last night because this one's ticking me off. Stop letting politicians and celebrities define marriage. 
It's not up to them. It's up to God. And the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is so clear on marriage. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life. That's God's plan for marriage. And you say, well, that's your opinion. No. It's <laughs> what the Bible says. Read it. Let's move on. Some of you are already uncomfortable. I'm going to make you more uncomfortable. Let's talk about sex. (laughs) Physical intimacy. Physical intimacy. Let's look at verses 3 and following. Paul says, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet, I wish that all men were even as myself, as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. Let me just start by saying the end of that passage that I just read, Paul says it. Celibacy is a gift. Paul said, I have it, but not everybody does. Most of you in this room don't. So if you're worried about that, relax. If you're thinking, maybe the reason I'm single is because i got this spiritual gift of celibacy. Listen, if you're burning with passion, then you know you don't have the gift of celibacy. It, it's, it's, and some of you are thinking, that don't sound like a gift I want to unopen. Well, it is a spiritual gift, and Paul said he had it. Okay, it is a gift, but I'll get to it in a minute. Marriage is also a gift. It's from God, and it's a good thing. So Paul said, I wish that all men were were as as I am. He said, basically, my preference, so that you could dedicate yourself, and he talks about this later in the chapter, so that you could dedicate yourself fully to God, then I would recommend, if you're able, if this sounds good to you, that you not be married. But if you already are married, or if because of immorality you're burning, that's the way God's created you is to be married, then you need to be married. Each man has his own gift. Celibacy is a gift. Physical intimacy is a gift. And Paul says each husband should fulfill his duty to his wife, a command to have physical intimacy in marriage, and each woman should fulfill her duty to her man. What he's saying is, listen, when you got married, and this is one of the things I say in counseling, marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. And I've heard people say that. Well, I'm, you know, I just, as long as I'm doing my 50%, who's keeping score of that? I promise you, if you intermarriage, think, well, I'm going to do, I'll meet you halfway as long as you meet me halfway. You will never feel like they came halfway. You'll feel like you're giving 75 and they're giving 25. Listen, marriage is 100%. You fully and completely give yourself to the other person, they fully and completely give themselves to you. You're now one flesh. So physical intimacy is a gift from God. In fact, he talks about then, what about celibacy inside of marriage? And that's apparently part of what was in the letter that he got from the Corinthians. Now that we've trusted Christ, is there something dirty about sex? Is there something dirty about physical intimacy? Therefore, maybe we should be celibate then. And Paul says, no. Stop depriving one another. It is an emphatic command. Paul says, stop depriving one another. I want to give you guidelines then that he gives us in this passage for abstinence in marriage. Five things. First, 
only by agreement. The word literally means a sounding together. It means that you've come together and you have agreed for a short period of time for a reason, and we'll get to that in a minute. We're going to abstain the focus on the Lord. So Paul says it's by agreement. Second, it's for a specific prearranged period of time. And I would say for a short period of time. For a, third, for a specific purpose so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Some translations add the word fasting. I would say if you're abstaining, you are fasting. Okay? Okay, so it's very um, proper within marriage that for a specific period of time, for a specific purpose. But then the fourth thing is, but come back together again. Why? Five. So that Satan, well, excuse me, it's not a command. Fifth thing is, fifth, fifth thing is, Paul said, I'm not, this isn't a command. But Paul's saying, I'm not encouraging you to do this. I'm just saying that if you do it, do it by agreement, do it for a specific time, do it for, for a specific purpose, and come back together again. Why? So that Satan will not have a way to tempt you. Third thing is, Satan always corrupts good gifts. Food is a good gift, but food to excess is called gluttony. It's not a good thing. Let's move off of that one. Money. Is money a bad thing? No. What does the Bible say? The love of money is the root of all evil. Not that money is the root of all evil, but the love of it. And what Satan does is he takes possessions and makes them your God. Or Satan will take anything other than God and try to make it your God. You can even take God's name in vain in worship. Did you know that? To take in vain means to lift up is meaning nothing. You can be singing the words off the screen without meaning them, and you just lifted his name up as meaning nothing. So Satan will take good things and try to corrupt it. And one of the things he tries to corrupt is physical intimacy. And let me just tell you, what Paul's saying is, if you've had this special time with God, understand that when you come out of it, the two of you need to get back together in that physical intimacy relationship. Why? Because Satan knows one of the best times to attack you is right after you've had a mountaintop experience. I want to say that to students here. This isn't dealing with physical intimacy. It's just dealing with the fact sometimes you can have the mountaintop experience at the beach on your beach retreat. And Satan starts jumping on you before you get back home. Why? Because he hates it that you've been worshiping God. And you've been making commitments to God. And so he tries to jump right on you. Same thing as what Paul is saying here. During marriage, specifics for abstinence in marriage. And then the last thing is just some instructions that Paul gives. Let me just read verses 8 and following. But I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let me stop right there and say something. Is desire for physical intimacy a sin? Satan did not create a desire for physical intimacy. He did not. God did. All right? You understand that? So the desire for physical intimacy, sometimes when you read this, like you lack self-control, you feel like you're weak or something. No. It's the way you were created was to be married. And for that to be fulfilled between a man and a woman, that was what God intended. So it's not a bad thing. He goes on to say, 
But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Just some instructions, and again, we're only getting through the 16th verse of the chapter. There's a lot more here that I don't have time to unpack for you this morning. But Paul gives some specific instructions. First thing is, God hates divorce. I don't believe I've ever counseled with a couple going through a divorce that wouldn't agree with that. They hate it too. Malachi chapter 2 verse 16. The Bible says God hates divorce. Why? Because God sees what it does to the people involved. When you are one flesh, the only way you can separate something that is one is to tear it. And that's painful. That's not a pruning. That's a catastrophe. And it happens in our society. I understand that. It happened in the New Testament. And that's why Paul says, Paul gives them instruction. He says, now, I'm not telling you this. The Lord is. Okay? All he's doing is going back and quoting from Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus speaks very directly to the passage or to the uh, issue, excuse me, Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Just make a note about that. I'm not going to flip over there. But Jesus answers some of the Pharisees' questions about marriage and divorce. And so Paul simply says, let me just remind you of what Jesus taught. And so he teaches them, not I, but the Lord. In fact, he says, let me give you instructions. The word there is kind of interesting because what it really means, let me transmit a message. The word for angel means messenger. And this word is a compound word that means I'm acting like an angel here. I'm transmitting a message from Jesus. So not I, but the Lord. Then he says, now let me tell you, I'm moving on to the rest of you. Now, not the Lord, I'm not quoting Jesus here, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this whole book is inspired by God. So I'm not quoting Jesus anymore, but now I'm back to what I've been doing all, the, all up to this point. I'm sharing with you what God's telling me to share with you. So Paul gives them some message for him, and that simply is to stay together. And again, remember, he's, he's answering questions from a church in Corinth, and one of the questions is, should, all right, two believers, should they even stay together? Paul says, absolutely. Well, then the question is, okay, what if the man comes to faith in Christ, but his wife doesn't? Do we stay together? Do we still, are we still involved intimately together because he's unclean, isn't he? Or the wife. What about a believing wife that has an unbelieving husband? So Paul says, listen, as long as they consent to live together. Ladies, you come to faith in Christ and your husband's not a believer yet, then stay with him as long as he consents to stay with you. Now, if he wants to leave, let him leave. In fact, verse 15 says, our rule here, our goal here is to live in peace. But to answer the question, I'm now a believer. I'm living with an unbeliever. Does the fact I'm living with an unbeliever and involved with him physically, does that make me unclean? Is it bringing down condemnation on the house? 
And, and Paul says, no, your house is sanctified because of your relationship with Jesus. Now, does it mean your husband becomes a Christian because you are? No. If it meant that, he wouldn't call him an unbelieving husband. Or he wouldn't have called her an unbelieving wife. No, to be sanctified means to be set apart. And all Paul is saying is you don't have to worry about being unclean or your children, he goes on to address them, or your children being unclean because of an unbeliever in the household. In fact, here's the good news for all of society. Society is blessed because of believers, because of God's grace. And the same thing is true in the home. God hates divorce, but the family is blessed through the believer. And the bottom line, he says, it's our goal to live at peace, wives, husbands, peace in the household. And I just want to be honest with you, the last verse, verse 16, how do you know whether you'll save your husband? I don't have the tense. I wish I could have heard Paul say that because as he's saying, how do you know by your behavior if your husband may not be led to Christ? Or is he saying, hey, quit clinging to him if he wants to leave because how do you know he's ever going to come to faith in Christ? Those are two different things. But our behavior is the same in either one of them. That is, obey God's word. Live in peace. Give an example of the believer. And hopefully, wives, through your example, hopefully, husbands, through your example, your wife, your husband will come to faith in Christ. But if they're determined to leave, then let them go. You're not under bondage for that. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, what an important topic. Lord, I recognize that we live in a generation where there's a lot of confusion about marriage. So, Father, I pray for believers in this room that we would know the truth. And, Lord, unfortunately, if we don't know what your word says, then we're easily influenced by popular opinion. And that opinion could come from a variety of sources. It could come out of the media. It may even come from the church. God, protect us from error on this. Help us to get this right. Because, Lord, if our marriages are a pattern of the church, then, God, I pray that those outside the church who have not come to faith in you would see what a godly marriage is all about. And certainly there's something attractive about that that would draw people to you. God, I pray right now for marriages in this room. God, it may be that somebody in this room right now is separated from their spouse. God, would you restore that family? There may be somebody in this room contemplating. Maybe somebody in this room that is, is under such temptation to step out of the marriage. God, would you protect that? Would you restore that marriage? Lord, would you take the blinders of deception off and allow them to see truly what your word says about marriage? God, for a lot of folks in this room who are unmarried, God, would you help them to be the kind of person that you'd want them to be to be married? God, for the young men in the room, Lord, I pray that you'd raise up some godly leaders among men who would not lord it over their wives, but would seek out a partner corresponding to them that you've already picked out for them. 
for the ladies in this room, God. Lord, would you help her to be that kind of precious woman of God that you would want her to be. And God, would you bring that young man into her life to be a partner for her. I pray that in Jesus' name.